This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Rising inflation, supply chain issues and the great resignation and labour shortages, these have been some of the defining factors of the economy in 2021. And looming over it all is COVID-19 with the threat of new variants adding to the uncertainty. So what's the outlook for 2022, two years after the pandemic, through a wrench in the economy? Abby Omar Dunby is a senior economist with PNC. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Well, it's been an interesting couple of years from the economic point of view. Um, lately, unemployment insurance claims have been declining. I'm wondering what that tells you about the economy in general. So it tells us that there's been strong improvements in the labor market. Um, so we had the viral recession last year. Um, this was the worst recession since World War II. And um, the U.S. economy has made strong improvements since then. Um, so we've seen a large decline in the unemployment rate. And we've also seen a large decline in unemployment claims, as you as you mentioned. Um, so this tells us that we've made strong improvements since uh, we had the prior recession last year. Can you say for sure, though, that the recession that stemmed from the pandemic is over? Because it's been a kind of strange recovery, right? Is it? Can you say definitively this recession is done? <laughs> no, no, that's a great point. Um, I'll use a different word. It's been a very uneven recovery. So we've seen recovery in some parts of the U.S. economy, while some parts are still struggling. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, compared to looking at the overall U.S. economy, um, the measure of overall economic outputs, which is mostly most widely used, is GDP. Mm-hmm. Using GDP, we've exceeded the pre-crisis level of GDP now. Also, you know, looking at consumer spending on goods. Um, we're above the pre-crisis level. So we're spending more on goods now than we did compared to the pre-crisis level. But in looking at other aspects of the U.S. economy, like um, the labor market, um, we're seeing labor shortages and um, the labor force is about 3 million down. Um, so the labor market still has some ground to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a very uneven recovery in, in general. Well, if you dig into some of those numbers in a bit more detail, um I'm reading that there are about 2.5 million fewer people in the labor force now than at the start of the pandemic. So what does that mean for businesses? I mean, so it means many businesses are having labor shortages. So many businesses are struggling to hire workers. Um, It's a very tight labor market, meaning that there are more um, jobs than there are workers, Um, particularly in the leisure and hospitality sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen uh, many businesses, you know, just complain about just it, them having issues hiring new workers. Um, and you know, part of the reason is because uh, many folks are afraid of the pandemic. So folks are scared of going out to look for a job because they don't want to contract the virus or spread the virus. Um, we've also had many folks who just retired early. Um, so, I mean, there are a bunch of factors that are affecting the labor shortage issue. And But I expect these issues, the, the labor shortage issues to improve in 2022. I wonder, though, how that fits in with the stories we're hearing about the so-called um, great resignation, right? Because there have been a lot of stories about people quitting their up and quitting their jobs. So how does that sort of fit in with the the narrative about people saying, I'm just going to sit tight because I'm not quite sure what's happening? Right. So in addition to the great quits, there's also the great switch going on. Mm-hmm. So many folks who are actually resigning or leaving their jobs are going to other jobs. You know, so um, there's a lot of demand for, from from businesses for workers. Um, so um, yes, there is a great resignation going on, but many folks are also 
you know, going to these jobs where they're being offered higher wages due to the fact that it's, it's a very tight labor market. Mm-hmm. If you look at Florida compared to the rest of the United States, and you mentioned leisure and hospitality, obviously, especially here in central Florida, those are huge factors in the economy. But um, are there other ways that businesses in Florida are being affected specifically by the, the labor shortage? Right. So, I mean, I think one thing about the Florida economy is the Florida economy doesn't really get much credit for being a very broad-based and diverse economy. So there's a lot more going on besides leisure and hospitality. Um, there's financial services, there's educational services, and so on. But I guess when a lot of folks think about Florida, the first thing that comes to their mind is theme parks, Disney, and mm-hmm. leisure and hospitality. Um, uh, I mean, for, for the Florida economy, Florida economy depends on domestic tourism, international tourism, you know, business travel, you know, many of these sectors are have still not fully recovered. Um, many countries still have restrictions and um, it's just a hassle even just traveling internationally now with tests and vaccinations and so on. Um, so, I mean, these are some of the factors affecting Florida's economy. Um, but as hopefully vaccination rates improve and as um, case counts decrease and, you know, hopefully we don't have a new variant, you know, so all these all these factors have been basically affecting Florida's economy. Are you seeing some businesses that are doing well and are actually have actually been able to adapt to this, uh, you know, uneven recovery and and are, are doing fairly well? I mean, I did interview a couple of businesses last year who had sort of managed to pivot. They were small enough that they could kind of adapt to this pretty strange environment we're in and and do quite well. But I'm wondering what you're seeing from an economic trend point of view. All right. So, so one thing we've seen in the past year has been that many businesses have you know, found ways to, you know, get more productive given um, the limitations. So, mm-hmm. I mean, many folks have been working from home for so long um, and, you know, and they've been just as productive or even more productive. Um, so we've seen some businesses who have adapted very quickly to technology and have been able to adapt and are actually um, being very successful during the pandemic. Okay, what about inflation then? Because that's another thing that's been making headlines lately. What impact has that had on the economy in 2021? And how big of a factor do you see that being in the months ahead? Right, so inflation is a big concern. Um, It's the Fed's um, biggest concern now. Um, The Fed has seen improvements in the labor markets, but um, inflation remains the biggest concern. Um, And, you know, there are a couple of issues that are factors are affecting inflation. So first, we're seeing supply chain disruptions. We've, we also saw an increase in oil prices, which is affecting inflation. Uh, but in my view, um, we're going to reach peak inflation in this year. And you know, higher inflation numbers, which we've been seeing this year, are not going to persist into next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why I feel this way. So first, the supply chain disruptions, which we've been feeling this, we've been um, experiencing this year, are going to improve. Um, we saw that there was a lot of demand for um, goods during the holiday season. Um, you know, once we get past the holiday season, you know, we're going to see easing in supply chain disruptions. And also, we've also seen energy prices, wholesale energy prices decline in recent weeks. You know, so those factors are going to contribute to lower inflation next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in my view, the peak, uh, we've reached peak inflation in 2021, and inflation is going to moderate towards the Fed's 2% targets. Um, in 2022. So you don't anticipate they'll have to do anything dramatic to try and make things head in the right direction there? No, right. So uh, the great thing about the Fed is the Fed has so many tools in um, 
in, in their toolbox in order to deal with inflation. One of the tools is to reduce interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the Fed reduces interest rates to the um, near zero level, then the Fed can buy assets from financial markets in order to um, put standard pressures on long-term interest rates. Um, so the Fed has, has been doing this since the pandemic started in order to put downward pressure on long-term interest rates. Um, so as the U.S. economy recovered and, um, you know, GDP surpassed the pre-crisis level and, you know, we saw improvements in certain parts of the labor market, the Fed decided to reduce these purchases. Um, so the Fed announced this in November and they're likely going to quicken the pace of that reduction. Mm-hmm. So just on supply chain issues too, I mean, one thing that strikes me there's been some kind of bizarre quirks in it, right? Like I was reading about a cream cheese shortage, which bagel lovers, it's been hurting them in certain parts of the country. Or even if you think back to 2020, there was a toilet paper shortage. Do you think we're going to see kind of more headlines like that? Or it sounds like you think the supply chain issues, those kinks are going to be fairly smoothed out. Yeah, 2022. I expect them to improve in 2022. But I think one of the reasons why we saw like shortages, like, you know, shortage of toilet paper and things like that was because um, last year we had many um, producers and businesses basically just um, close up shop for mm-hmm. you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And, but when the U S economy reopened, we had this turbocharged demand and many producers couldn't keep up um, with the demand. So um, there were many goods where producers just weren't able to produce enough for the demand. That's why we saw the shortage. Um, so I think as long as we're able to um, handle um, the current variants, Omicron or uh, a Delta or any other variants that come, um, as long as we're able to you know, deal with those variants effectively, um, it's very unlikely that we experience shortages, um, which we experienced, the same type of shortages which we experienced last year. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Omicron, I mean, it is looming a little bit over the, the economy, right? And we're seeing in other countries, the United Kingdom, for example, they're, you know, they're starting to see some of the worst impacts of it. What kind of impact does that have on, say, consumer confidence and the economy in general? Right. So, I mean, so far, what we've heard about Omicron um, has been many countries outside the U.S. or um, you know, they're dealing with it better than the Delta. Um, Delta. Mm-hmm. And so far, you know, the cases are not as severe as um, the Delta case. So I don't expect Omicron to derail the U.S. economy. Um, I don't expect it to um, ha- cause us to have another recession. Um, but as you said, you know, it may affect consumer confidence, right? So if uh, we're seeing an increase in cases or if we're seeing an increase in hospitalization rates, um, it could affect consumer um, sentiment and affect um, consumer demand for goods and services. Mm-hmm. In general, the economy doesn't like uncertainty, right? And, you know, this time last year, we just had an election that had been decided that had resolved at least one question mark. I wonder what your take is, um, Abby, on the uncertainty factor right now. I mean, there are still some, I guess, unresolved issues if you think about the pandemic that could have an impact on the economy. But what's our uncertainty level right now compared to where we were this time last year? Right. So in 2020, end of um, 2020, I'll say the uncertain level was probably on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most uncertain was probably at eight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As things stand now, I think we're closer to a three or four. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we have um, learned to deal with a pandemic 
um, in as effective as we can. So and then there's social distancing, folks are wearing masks, um, and uh, we're better positioned to deal with a new variant now than we were um, last year. And also vaccination rates are up pretty much um, in, in, in many countries, particularly mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, so I think there, there is a level of uncertainty, but it's a much more healthy level of uncertainty compared to where we were last year. So as an economist, you're you're probably feeling better about heading into 2022 than you were heading into 2021. Absolutely, you know, um, consumers are well positioned for well positioned for um, 2022. Um, consumer balance sheets are very good. Consumers benefited from um, the unemployment benefits and the three sets of checks which were sent by Congress, and financial obligation ratios are very low. So I feel much better now than I felt last year. Um, I feel that there is a lower level of uncertainty. And I feel that um, consumers are very well positioned to continue to drive the US economy in 2022. Abby Omar Dunby is a senior economist with PNC. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, Matt. Up next, creating an oasis of produce in a food desert. Once you try okra and your first tomato off a tree, it's hard to go back to the stuff brought in the store. And also it's critical for the diet here. When we come back, we'll visit Infinite Zion Urban Farm in Paramore. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Two years ago, Ray Warthen broke ground on an urban farm in the heart of Paramore. Now the farm's producing collard greens, eggplants, tomatoes and okra and honey from hives that are home to about 30,000 bees. Warthen is working to cultivate an oasis of fresh produce in a food desert and he also wants to help the community transform their approach to food and their own backyards. Uh, I'm a fifth-generation farmer. Uh, my farming days go way back to, uh, my, the, I guess, the pharaohs. Uh, Ramses III. I'm a paternal descendant of Ramses III and did some ancestry and found out he was also known for farming and gardening. So it's almost 5,000 years ago. My DNA is still following that uh, paternal line of uh, a family. But, yes, my um, father was a farmer. Also my great-great-uncle, Julius July Perry. You probably heard her from the Koi Massacre. It's also my great-great-uncle. So it's it's not doing it because it's cool. It's doing it because this is who we are. That's who we are in the blood. And also, once you see the benefits of how it helps the community out and people tasting their, their fruits and vegetables right from the tree, how it changes their life, it doesn't. Once you try okra and your first tomato off a tree, it's hard to go back to the stuff brought in the store. And also, it's critical for the diet here because the diet here, there's no grocery stores in Paramore. There's nothing healthy. I just passed by this morning and saw people getting sodas, buying sodas for morning. Nine o'clock in the morning, we're walking with Coca-Colas and Debbie's Twisted Treats. And that's for breakfast. And there's no produce here in the neighborhood. And I want to create a hub, and which we have done, um, moving 25 tons of earth and rock to build this space. Uh, that's how much it took, almost two years. So we built the space and completed the CSA program at the same time. And the CSA program is a community-supported agriculture program. Uh, through the city of Orlando, we've helped uh, complete their pilot program they have going for six years. We're the first organization to actually complete the program through a USDA grant. So it's been a pretty big feat, but we're still building, as you can see. Uh, it's definitely come a long way. So it's critical that we have fresh organic produce to the community that changes the dynamic and the history, and also for the kids that are the biggest part, and the elders who will never even try some of the produce that we produce out of the garden. So what was here before? Uh, it was another garden here before. Uh, it was another organization that was here, and um, whatever happened, they uh, I guess they, they took off, and there was no longer here. And uh, I guess 20-plus years ago, there used to be a complex here. And they tore the complex down. And I guess they flattened land out. There were other gardens here before, but nothing of this scale. 
But when we came in, there was literally no electricity. I mean, we had to come in and put up our own electricity, and this land was flattened land. I can show you pictures. There was literally nothing out here, not even electricity. So we had to build literally from scratch. There was nothing here but the fence. There was no structures. There was a little four-by-eight shed we, we hid in uh, during the rain, and that was, like, full of rats and stuff in the bottom. So we come a long way uh, from those days to now. So I'm very proud of my team, very proud of our friends and family who's been there to support this venture. And uh, this remained the majority of probably funding from me and my wife. We spent over $75,000, you see here, of our own money and funding uh, to help. The city of Orlando uh, helped us out some and with the USDA grant. But overall, that, came, that majority was out of, uh, yeah, came from us and we just want to sort of dedication and show i always want to build a space that people can come see it and not just talk about it and we built the space people even people in the garden passed by i said well why would you build a garden in such a high crime place people don't realize the community respects the garden the community can look out for us now and there's been times i left the gate open anything everything happening and no one touches the garden because they realize the value that we hold we give them honey we give them produce and when so you have beehives here yeah i got thirty thousand bees. i'm gonna you i have some honey you can try i harvested wow. some yesterday yeah i have a little sample for you all and the coolest part about it uh, was the people trying these items for the first time they never need people never, never thought of beekeeping we have about thirty thousand bees on site just creating that whole experience for them and the kids and even the walk by someone walked by they'll set a chair out in the front because it's the only green space in a concrete jungle everything else is torn down they just enjoy the beauty of the garden nighttime and uh, it's been a beauty i'm, I'm thankful for the paramore community for accepting us because it that hasn't always been the case with these type of farms um that the women the other organizations they we found trash tires radiators whatever happened we had to clean up a lot of stuff out of the garden we were moving three four hundred pound boulders i can show you pictures of out of the ground uh seriously and um we moved 12.678 tons of dirt rock and trash just to build this flat space you see now we had to take out uh 12 tons those are some pretty impressive eggplants behind you there, i got to oh, yeah, say. No, definitely, definitely. They look beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Those, believe it or not, those are about to die. I was going to take those out, but my master gardener, Bianca and Grant, uh, they came in and they sprayed. They were covered in mites, but they showed me the power of love. And when they did that, they, was, they brought the eggplants. So if you want the eggplants before you go, <laughs> I can eat them. I can, I can grow them, but I just don't eat them. It's just the beauty of people coming out and the kids. So I'm realizing that okra grows on trees, not in the ground. Potatoes grow in the ground, not on trees. It's amazing how how much lack of information and knowledge and it hurts me because this is our ancestry you know we're the pioneers of farming so we should be at the forefront and at least have the knowledge base and i'm trying to teach people not only farming but sustainability at the same time and i just set up a raised bed this morning it's my next door neighbor's house right over here we just set up a four-way raised bed in front of his house and my neighbor behind us here is a 15 foot tall banana tree you can see over the greenhouse his backyard was blank before we got here so slowly we're encouraging and uh, pretty much helping the community realize the potential of having your own farm. So were you farming in the uh, Coe area before this? Apopka, yeah. We, we started a real deer farm. I tell people we started a real deer farm, a 20-acre farm in Apopka. And we were out there for almost uh, three or four years. And our first son was born, so we wanted to take a break. So we, as we were taking a break, that's when uh, Evident Nutrition approached us. Uh, with, along with the city of Orlando, saying, hey, we need help on in, in, in the Paramount community. I knew nothing about Paramount. I knew, I, I knew about this garden. But I knew nothing about what was going on, so we walked in, and uh, we were able to convert this garden over. And through COVID-19, we passed out a bunch of meals, over 3,000 pounds of produce. This garden produced over 500 pounds of produce per month. That's amazing. It's a small space. And it's all about ingenuity, spacing the plants, knowing how wide they're going to grow. I tell people it is possible. We produce 497.18 pounds 
per month last year. So we're looking to do more. So I'm, I know, I'm known for collard greens. I told the community I want to grow what the community wants. I don't want to grow random stuff. So that's the first thing I did. I went across the street to the neighbors. What do you all want to grow out here? We need Georgia collars. All right. I'll be, the, I'll, be the, I'll be the collard green man. So that's what we started growing. So are you, like, selling to restaurants? To like, How, oh, yeah, how does no, the... The, the interest of the restaurants, yes. We have restaurants that are interested in the greens. Uh, we, we, we sell some greens to them. And sometimes some in the community, we you know, they have the we have the EBT card. And also for our CSA program, Community Support Agriculture Program, we have that as well. And uh, we're now making a meal-based program for Community Support Agriculture. And sometimes we give the greens away. And on COVID-19, we were giving garbage bags of greens away because that the demand, the only meal some of these kids had were in school. But when the, when the city was on, on the curfew and school was out, there was no meals for the kids. So the, the demand on this farm grew every day. People were coming by to get food, to get drinks, to just, just sometimes just get water. And we were handing out garbage bags of mustard greens and collard greens. And when I handed them one bag, it droves of people just came in. We were literally bag after bag, just greens going out. Didn't sell us to know the community needed. We wanted to help feed the community. And that's how we gained respect. So. I guess you got to be pretty hardy to farm anything, right? I mean, it's hard work, so. Yes, farming this summertime has been really tough. Uh, everyone, it's been really hard. Farming this year, we had the bugs. I had to release 6,000 ladybugs in the garden. Oh, uh, really? Yes. Where would you get them from? Uh, Amazon. But, yeah, I got it. I got it from Amazon. I, I, I didn't think you order ladybugs on Amazon. I was, I was like, oh wow, this is a three thousand. So yes, yeah, I freaked my wife out because I put it in the wrong refrigerator. <laughs> what I did when I got home, I said, oh, I was tired. Oh, I'm just sticking in the fridge. And she got in the fridge and she opened the box up. She was like, whoa, what is this? I heard her screaming and she just happened to pull out. I said, what is that, babe? My ladybug said, why are they in the fridge? I said, why are they in the garage? I said, put those out. I don't want to go in my fridge to open up and see a bunch of bugs. And so I freaked out. So, uh, yes, uh, but the ladybugs, the mites, the aphids, they, it was so bad I hit during the summertime. Because remember, people say global warming is not real. The rain said, no, you, you're not a farmer and gardener. This year, we didn't win it so long. The April showers bring May flowers, but that didn't happen this year. But when the rain finally came, almost June, all the bugs that were dried out, they came with all the plants, and it took over. And that's when I, that's the first time I had to get ladybugs. And now you can record them eating all the, all the mites and aphids on the plants, and especially up in the vineyard. We have a huge vineyard. So, yeah, so a whole different different farming techniques. Um, and urban farming is very different than standard farming. I was, it was a learning curve for me from going from urban, regular farm to an urban farm because the environment's different. You're surrounded by highways. The air quality's not the same. What about your bees, too? They, they cope okay with, like, oh, pesticides no. oh, and stuff? No, the, the bees, actually, the bees were actually in the back here, and they were kind of covered in shade. And I was concerned about it being out in the sun. So we actually moved them about six months ago, and they've done so well. We're getting ready to harvest four whole racks of full honey. And I, I'll give you a sample. We harvest a little bit. I'll let you try some honey. It has a, one hive has an orange flavor. Another hive has, like, a blueberry flavor. And so they're two separate flavors, and it's a beautiful thing to be. I'll show you there in the front. We've got about 30,000 bees, and we're going to be growing more uh, for the bee apiary. So, yes, it's been a beautiful venture having the bees out and just teaching the bees. And for me, the bees were important because my dad uh, was tied to bees. He loved bees. Um, the story of about the mango trees in the backyard, I had no idea. He sat there almost an hour. I don't know what my dad was looking at. I thought he was drunk or something. He's sitting there, got a big fro, sitting on the bench. He's, his head's going left and right, left and right. I'm like, what is he looking at? I didn't realize he was watching the bees cross-pollinate the tree. And just what he knew, just by watching the bees, we were going to have a fruitful season or a not-so-fruitful season. Just sitting there watching the bees go back and forth. So that's why the bees are much more than just cool, oh, I'm a beekeeper. It ties back to my father. And we just got these avocado trees. I planted these. This is doing well. 
avocado trees, mango trees, banana trees. So we're going to plant more and more. And the tomatoes are growing in now. So uh, uh, Grant, my, one of my garden managers, grew the tomatoes in. It's just trying their own food and produce. And my, I tell my wife, anytime I'm, I work on a high stressor job uh, with, uh, with the Brightline High Street Realm Consultant for them. I'm out there. My heart rates is like 83, 85. So wait, this is a second job for you? Yeah, yes. I, I'm, this is my hobby. I'm a project manager for Brightline High Street Rail. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, yes, I do that in the daytime. And right now, well, we're working 10 to 16 hours a day. It's not because the project's going full throttle yeah. at the moment. So I work uh, 10, 12-hour days out there and come here from 5 p.m., sometimes 2 in the morning. Huh. And I'll get home about 5 a.m., get about two hours of sleep, get the kids back ready. And I'm back out the door. So wow. this has been, um, they, they call me Cyborg. They have many different names for me. <laughs> uh, but, but honestly, my dog. This, this is an awesome second job to come to, though. Right? This is, is like a kind of a regenerating place. It is. And it's, uh, it's also the drive, you know, as I said, it comes from my own father. I always think about, you know, all the things my dad wanted to do when he was, you know, with had cancer. And that has that his spirit, absorbing the spirit and his energy. And that's what kind of keeps that drive of me going, knowing that he would want to do this. He would want to see this. Even when he went to Grand Canyon, he wanted to hike the trail, and, but he was so weak because of the cancer, he couldn't. So after he passed away, I hiked a 20-mile hike in the north room, the south room for him, 19.6 miles in one day. I did that in honor for him because he couldn't do it. So a lot of this is attributed to the things he taught me. Also, my great-grandmother in Live Oak Lake City, that's North Florida. People don't people think Florida's not country. It's not until you go to Live Oak Lake City, uh, just now outside of Gainesville. Uh, it's definitely countryside. I learned different means and methods from her because I grew up in South Florida. We grew more tropical trees. In North Florida, we grew more collards, uh, 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 mustard greens, and ton of greens. So I pretty much combined both worlds on this lot to create this environment. That was Ray Warthin, the founder of Infinite Zion Farms. I spoke to him at his urban farm in Orlando's Paramore neighborhood back in November. Still to come, when Teresa Clower's son died of a fentanyl overdose, she started drawing to help process her grief. I had no idea that I could even begin to make a drawing, a portrait with pencil. I just knew that I, I needed to express myself some way artistically. Now her life has become a mission to tell the stories of others who've lost their lives to substance use disorder. That conversation after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A new report that came out this month found fatal overdoses are rising in central Florida even after the pandemic restrictions were loosened. It's part of a grim trend. In November, the 12-month death toll for drug overdoses in the U.S. passed 100,000 for the first time. North Carolina artist Teresa Clower is working to put a human face on the numbers. After her son died of an accidental fentanyl overdose in 2018, she began drawing portraits of others who've died from overdoses as a way to help process her grief. Next year, the Orange County Regional History Centre will hold an exhibition of Clower's portraits and showcase her project, Into Light, which aims to end the stigma of drug addiction by telling the stories of people who've died because of substance use disorder. I'm joined now by Teresa Clower. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start by asking about your son, Devin. Uh, he's the reason you embarked on this artistic project. So tell me about him. Uh, Devin was 32 years old when he, he uh, died of a, an accidental overdose. Uh, he was six foot two. He was the third of my uh, children. He had two older siblings and a younger sibling. Um, he was uh, a live wire. He was very lanky. We called him the exclamation point because he had such personality and he was so tall. He was educated. He was um, very, very funny. And he also had struggled with 
addictions for about 10 years. So he had been in and out of treatment. Uh, at the time of his death, Devin was working full-time, was uh, living in a sober environment, and he had a date. Uh, so the money and the date and the opportunity to uh, have a good time were a kind of a perfect storm for Dev that evening in 2018. But he was very much loved, very, um, very much missed, and a, um, a wonderful son and brother and friend. Did you know a lot about fentanyl before this happened? I knew nothing about fentanyl. Uh, that's a relatively new addition to the drug scene, uh, which is, of course, taking so many lives with it. It's extremely powerful. So I knew nothing about that. Um, and I, I know that Devin had no intention of getting a drug laced with anything like fentanyl. So how important was art in your life before 2018? Uh, almost non-existent. As a matter of fact, I had never done a portrait before uh, Devin died. And I did have a background in fine arts through my college education, but I had not done, I had never done portrait work, very little graphite work. And because of uh, just life of, life goes on, I had very little to do with any kind of art when Dev died. Mm-hmm. And so this was part of what took you back to rediscovering your artistic tendencies? What it really did uh, was it opened up the door for me to find a positive way to grieve. Um, it, it, uh, it was an incredibly powerful experience, the first portrait I did of Devin. Um, it was uh, in the image that I used, the photograph I used, was taken five hours before he died. Um, he was very very peaceful looking, very clear eyed, very lovely. It's Devin that I like to remember. And mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so I, I worked on that portrait for about three days because as I said, I had no experience with portraiture work and you have to actually make it look like the person. So for me, that was quite challenging, but um, I did that. I visited with him. It was quite a beautiful process actually. And uh, then I put that drawing away after I had done everything I could possibly do. And I knew instinctively that that last step was going to be a very difficult one for me. Um, mm -hmm. So three days later, I pulled that drawing, that very first portrait out, and um, I looked at it and signed my name to the bottom right. And with that, I was basically saying goodbye to Devin. And it opened up a floodgate of not only emotion, um, but also possibility. And I knew mm -hmm. right then and there that I was going to be in some way using this newfound love and this hidden skill, if you will. And I do consider that a gift from Devin, by the way. But I knew that I was going to be using that in some way um, in this chapter of my life. When you sat down and put pencil to paper that first time, though, were you sort of like, did you think, okay, this is, I, I just need to do something with my hands to try and express how I feel? Or, or was it more sort of instinctive? Like, I'm just wondering how the connecting drawing to, to grieving came about. Was that like a thought out process for you or just something that happened organically? It was organic. Um, the suggestion was made by Devin's sister. I, um, I had no idea that I could even 
begin to make uh, a, a drawing, a portrait with pencil that mm-hmm. would resemble anyone or anything. Um, <clears throat> I just knew that I, I needed to express myself some way artistically. Mm-hmm. Drawing can be quite meditative, right? And and to your point about working on it and, and sort of trying to capture the likeness of someone, you have to concentrate. So there's there's something about the process of it that it's beyond just getting to a finished product, isn't it? It really is. And you've, you've hit on something very beautiful. It is meditative. And to date, I have produced over 250 drawings of people around the country, portraits of people who've died from drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is a process that is extremely meditative. And I visit, I can actually, as hokey as this sounds, I can actually feel the energy of each of these people as I'm working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I get frustrated. I'll say, Oh, Michael, would you just cooperate? You know, one of the eyes just isn't coming out or whatever. I, I actually have that kind of relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. And the other thing that's very beautiful about the hand drawn is that it is rather unique in our culture to have portraits of loved ones and particularly portraits of, of loved ones who um, have struggled as much as people with this disease. So that being said, it, it, it grabs people in a way. And the, the use of graphite, so pencil, black and white and gray, is also a beautiful metaphor for the fact that we're all made up of light and dark and all shades in between. And no one should be judged by their darkest moments. So mm-hmm it all kind of works in in some sort of a very beautiful way. So after that first portrait, uh, how did you come to the idea of working with other families and, and capturing the likenesses of other folks who've, who've died of drug addiction? Like where, where did that impulse come from? I was drawing um, people's grandchildren. I was drawing my grandchildren. I was drawing my family members and and people I've seen on the street. And then I thought to myself, and this, again, it's very meditative and sort of, as I said, it's very organic. Why not put this time and energy that I'm, I have in, to producing portraits in a way that might be of benefit to the larger, larger group. Mm-hmm. And so I decided right then and there as I'm, you know, kind of saying, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Where would I begin? And Devin died in Baltimore. So I decided to do 41 portraits of people in Maryland and find a location that would exhibit these. Mm -hmm. And that was two years ago, which blows my mind that in two years we've been able to accomplish now our sixth state. Um, But it, it, and so the, the outpouring of support and interest in what we call into light. My dear friend Laurie named into light because it is about bringing a lot of the stigma and the individuals into the light. Just mm-hmm. you know, bring it to light, bring it to bear, and talk about it and talk about them. So um, it it was it was a natural outpouring of how to use a skill set that I felt was a gift and use it in a way that that might benefit the conversation around addiction. The number continues. It usually uh, is a, it's a catalyst for uh, opportunity for us to talk about numbers. So Mm -hmm. for example, um, last year alone during our pandemic, we had 
over 100,000 people die in our country from drug misuse. And so it begs the question, what's going on? And I think everyone knows those numbers now, or at least has heard those numbers. Uh, so what we're trying to do within To Light is, is put a face and a story. So one thing we haven't talked about is that we also provide narratives mm-hmm. for every single person. We have a fabulous um, volunteer who um, writes 400 words or more of each individual in the exhibition. And that information is given to us by the family members. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining me, my guest is artist Teresa Clower. Her son died of a fentanyl overdose in 2018, and she is working on a project that will debut at the Orange County Regional History Center uh, next year. It's called Into Lights, Portraits of uh, People Who've Died of overdoses, and it aims to uh, bring about conversations and help destigmatize substance use disorder. Teresa, so do you find people reaching out to you? Like, has your has your project gathered some momentum to the point where people know about it and are saying, um, "Here's somebody we'd like you to to uh, to do a portrait of." To an extent, yes. We're now, uh, as I as I mentioned, we're in our Florida, which was open. March, uh, early March, March 5th, 4th, mm-hmm. in Orlando um, at the History Museum, as you mentioned, History Center. We um, are now getting states contacting us, individuals in other states now are helping us um, kind of grease the way to an exhibition. Our goal is an exhibition in every state in the country. Um, we've now done Maryland, Ohio, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Florida, and then in the fall, of next year will be California. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working on a several other states. So um, that's one area that, that we could certainly use support for is branching out into other states. But we, we have one exhibition per state. And yes, within each state, we contact support groups, uh, work with local officials. By the way, this, this particular project is being sponsored by the Orange County Health Department. So, so um, it, yeah, it's, it's not difficult to fill the slots, um, and it certainly is growing, yes, for sure. We have a, a major goal of uh, a show in every state and then with an ultimate national exhibition, a multimedia exhibition in 2030. Mm-hmm. So about nine years from now, um, all states will be completed and this national exhibition to really document this epidemic and to put a human face on it and to and to continue the conversation. And that that is um, kind of in, in the spirit of the um, AIDS name quilt. Mm. This will be a similar um, similar national exhibition. The numbers, as you alluded to earlier, are pretty staggering and everybody has a different story. But are there some that have stayed with you in the course of making these portraits? Yeah, well, there certainly are lots, lots of things that that we could say. Um, I, I can generalize and say that all 41 people in every single uh, portrait I've done in all the states that we've been in, are people who are very much loved. They come from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, They have a variety of education behind them. Um, Goals are all over the place. But uh, I can give you one, which is always always startling to me when people um, are 
prescribed opioids by their doctors and accomplished people. So one young man in Florida uh, was a, a registered nurse and he was very accomplished and um, he became addicted to pain medications because he had some precancerous tumors removed from a tibia mm -hmm. and uh, that started him on a lifelong, well, his journey was um, fighting this addiction that he was you know, put on basically because of medical conditions. And then because of his background as a registered nurse, he was single, he had uh, he offered to work with COVID patients. And when he was not working with those patients, he had to quarantine. And as a result of that, he was not able to attend and get access to his support group for his own addiction. And he passed because of one, one bad fentanyl situation. Mm. Um, there's uh, an attorney that, that we know of. There's, uh, young people in high school. I mean, the age is, is all over the place. It goes from 17 on up. You know, they're young people and none of those dreams. And the other thing is that's very fascinating to me is the personality of often of people who are um, struggling with disease like this is that they're generally, they're generally very much risk takers and they, um, like my Devin, was a risk taker. He was always um, someone who was very sensational in his approach to life. So that personality, Devin could have done so much with his life. That, I'm no, no question in my mind that he had the gifts to be able to do a lot. Um, we're losing a whole generation of people whose skill sets would be people who have a lot of creativity and come up with large ideas. Mm -hmm. And this is this is just something that that stigma does to us. Has your personal experience has that changed the way you think about drug use and and drug misuse and and addiction? Oh, without a doubt. Um yes. And we are uh, Devin's family has um we're certainly not wealthy people, but we are we are comfortable and educated and to be able to maneuver the system when you have a loved one who is in need of medical attention and is dealing with this disease of addiction, the, the quagmire in this system is unbelievable. Um, we had, we had literally doors and windows shut in his face when he asked for help. Mm. Um, and this is, this is not uncommon. We're seeing there's a lot of shame and sti there's stigma within the medical profession. So yes, it has changed my, my view 100%. And, and I, um, I feel like we need to, as a society, do what we can, obviously, to, to bring this into the light so that we know, I mean, without without getting past stigma, any treatment that you have, no matter how good it is, no matter how much there is, if you don't get the people to come forth, that's the first step. If you don't get that, then there is no, nothing we can do. So we have, to, we have to normalize this as a disease. And just to let you know, 90% of the people who have the disease of addiction, substance use disorder, 90% of them do not come forth for help. 
So that's, that's alarming. Um, and in my own small and pure and simple way, I'm doing what I can to change that conversation. Do you think the narrative has changed a little bit anyway? I just wonder, because I'm, I'm thinking about like attitudes to, to drug addiction in general over the decades. And, you know, since the, the war on drugs, do you think we've come, we're, we're heading towards a less punitive approach and maybe more a sort of understanding of the medical side of, of drug addiction? I do think that we've made advances, certainly. But meanwhile, you know, like I said, over 100,000 people died last year. And we don't have necessarily the proper treatment. We don't have, we do have medications now that can um, impact and make a big difference. Um, so, you know, basically the medically uh, assisted treatment, mm-hmm. but there's a judgment about that. And, um, you know, trading one drug for another, it's, it, that is not the case. You wouldn't certainly say to someone with diabetes, don't take your medication for the rest of your life. You know, mm-hmm. you, you simply don't do that. So that's why I say we have to have to normalize this as a disease. And um, we're making some progress, but we have a long way to go. Have some of the stories or some of the people that you've made portraits of, have any of them been from like the wave of folks who would have died, you know, decades ago? Or are they all more recent? Yes, out of out of all of the portraits I've done, um, there was one one that um, died in the seventies, and that was interesting because they had very few pictures, you know. And I rely on a reference, um, a, a good reference, to mm-hmm. do these portraits. And so much has changed since then, right? I mean, I just just kind of thinking about attitudes towards addiction and and substance use. I mean. It's it's a world of difference between now and the 1970s, right? Right, and um, and there's an argument to be made about why is it suddenly such a an important issue when people, you know, particularly the black community, have been dying from uh, this disease for decades, and it was overlooked. My my reaction to that is um, that. I mean, I certainly sympathize and I empathize with anyone who's lost anyone to this disease. And we all come to the table in our own time. So I wasn't involved with this in any way back in the 60s and 70s and 50s. I was only involved in it to the extent that I've been working with my own son for the last decade. And we tried to keep him healthy and we tried to get him the help he needed for that first decade. So really my opportunities to get involved have just been recent. Who would you like to come see this exhibition? Like who's your audience in your mind? I would like to say all areas within societies. I I think it's an opportunity for us to teach young people um, and by the way, we, you know, we can work on um, uh, lesson, lesson plans, workbook things for any educators who might be there. And I'm, I mean, from elementary school on up, I mean, we have to look at this as a, a community disease. And um, so I would say educators, I would say youth, um, certainly individuals in colleges, universities, um, families who have loved ones and struggled. I had one mother in Baltimore who walked into the gallery and said, this is the first time I've been able to hold my head high. 
so it does show a lot of respect and um, and hope and love and a place of honest support. Medical professionals. I mean, there's a lot, as I mentioned, there's still a lot of stigma and a lot of uh, judgment. And um, I know it's over overload in many ways. EMT drivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of get numb to this. But coming and seeing the portraits, and as I said, something about the art grabs people in a way that a photograph can't. Mm-hmm. And reading their story, um, hoping, I'm hoping that anyone, faith community, anyone who um, can get to this exhibit, do so and spend some time visiting. I mean, 41 people is a lot to to kind of read everything. But even if you go and you you read 10 of these narratives and look seriously look at the portraits, I think you come away with a different attitude. So have you already made a start on this particular body of work? Oh, yeah, it's almost completed. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's almost completed, and um, uh, we're gearing up now for the for the opening reception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what's what's left for you from the artistic process point of view? What do you still need to do? Oh, I, well, <laughs> I have eleven more portraits to produce between now and the the first week of January. I am I am pushing hard, and I'm I'm strapped to my easel, um, but. You know, it'll be done, Mm -hmm. no doubt. We also produce a beautiful catalog with each exhibition. So we have, you know, the the show opens in March, but then everything will have to be shipped and crated down to Florida. I live in North Carolina. So, you know, there's lots of logistics behind it all. But I am I'm doing very little other than I didn't even put up a Christmas tree this year because I don't have time. (laughs) I have to draw. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. It's busy. We've been speaking with artist Teresa Clower. Her son died of a fentanyl overdose in 2018, and her exhibition Into Light, depicting others who've lost their lives to substance use disorder, will be on display at the Orange County Regional History Centre in March. Teresa, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 